It's five years since Uber first launched its app in London, and in that time it's made its fair share of both enemies and friends. But today, Transport for London announced that it would not be renewing Uber's licence to operate in the city at the end of this month. In a statement, they said the company was not fit and proper to hold a licence and had demonstrated a lack of corporate responsibility. Uber launched in the UK a decade ago, and its smartphone app has helped to revolutionise how people order taxis. You can now use your phone to hail nearby drivers. But as that BBC News report from 2017 demonstrates, it's not always been smooth sailing for the company. I'm Graeme Ruddick, and you're listening to Business Studies, a podcast that takes a second look at business stories from the past. In this episode, we speak to Andrew Brem, the boss of Uber in the UK, about the rise of the company and its future, including the company's recent announcement that it wants all of its taxis in London to be electric by 2025. I spoke to Andrew Brem at an event to mark that announcement, where Hollywood actor Ed Norton was among the speakers discussing the importance of cutting carbon emissions. However, the UK's net zero policies have become increasingly politicised, amid signs of a backlash from voters, particularly in London, about the expansion of the ultra-low emission zones. London is like the standard bearer for Uber in terms of electric vehicles. It is, by the way, Uber's second biggest city after New York. So London is actually super important just in the constellation of cities that that Uber has. But it is extra important because of the sustainability angle. And, you know, sustainability is ultimately at the heart of ride sharing in the sense that, I mean, the world that one can just about envisage is a world where you no longer need to have your own car because it's so easy and convenient to hop into a car that's that's you know shared with others and so even the the base business of ride sharing has a sustainability angle to it at a micro level by the way i i, I feel that i think people may not be jettisoning their only car yet they may be jettisoning a second car if they're lucky enough to have one on smaller things, they are just as thing. My wife's electric bike got stolen a couple of months ago. Their line bikes, which one of our partners, all over London. Why have your own? You know, there isn't space in my house to keep it. It's inconvenient to charge it. Much easier, hop on a line bike, off I go. And I think ride sharing can and should become that as well. Before, well, until the pandemic stopped, we, we had a, a product called Uber Pool, which was a proper sharing product. So you might find yourself on a ride with some people you don't know. We, we've reinvented that product as UberX Share, and that is gradually being rolled out across the world as well. And I hope to have it here in London. So that would be another manifestation, even before you get to electrification. When it comes to electrification, a lot of Londoners will think of Uber as a Prius. I mean, obviously there are other cars, but you know, even that was a hybrid vehicle. What we're talking about electrification now, and our goal for having 100% of vehicles that are driving on the Uber platform in London to be electric by the end of 2025, just to be totally clear, we're talking pure EVs, 100% EVs, not a hybrid type thing, not in plug, plug-in hybrid, they're like the real deal. In order to make that happen, what our experience is telling us is that you need a twin-pronged approach. You absolutely need government, whether that be 
you know, national government or local government, cities or whatever, to create an environment of carrots or sticks that really encourage that for road users. And then a company like Uber can come alongside to really support that. So in London, you've got the congestion charge, you you know, depending on your borough, whatever, my, I've got a pollster I'm using at the moment, that's parked for free in Camden, that's an incentive. You know, the congestion charge, not having to pay that as an electric vehicle is a big incentive. That's super important. I think you, you absolutely need government to support. What we can do then is come in massively to support our drivers to make the choice to go electric. As you heard at the start of this episode, Uber has clashed with regulators and the government in London and the UK more broadly. There have been disputes over the safety of passengers, the employment terms of drivers and the threat the company posed to London's black cab drivers. But Uber has actually managed to keep its licence through all this and various appeals. It currently has a deal in London that runs until the end of 2024. And while Uber may have clashed with regulators in the UK, those regulators have now helped to put the UK and London at the centre of Uber's plans. I would call out London regulation with respect to road use as being specifically an example of regulation that encourages very strongly a massive change in behaviour. But obviously, there's all sorts of regulation, and some of it needs updating and changing, and no one likes red tape and bureaucracy for the sake of it. But I think to get a, a, a meaningfully fast switch to sustainable travel, you need a very active transport policy. And I think Sadiq and his team in London have done a great job on that. And I know that there are other mayors elsewhere in the UK who are looking and thinking, what can we do? And we would like to work with other cities in the UK to create regulation, in other words, incentives, really, well-designed to encourage people to make that transition. How much were you also forced into this by the licence and the need to maintain a relationship with, with the mayor's office to, to both get the new licence and then to hopefully extend it in the future? I obviously wasn't in Uber at that time, um, joining just over a year ago. But to my knowledge, that wasn't a major factor. I think they're, they're different things. So it is the case that private hire transport in the UK and especially in London, is very highly regulated. I do think that is ultimately for the good of passengers and also, by the way, for, of drivers as well. I, I, I think some of the regulations could be updated for the modern age, and we're in dialogue with the relevant regulators to do that. I'll, I'll just give you a practical example. Um, you know, it's extremely important that we and our drivers hold the right documentation. So we need to know that that vehicle, that an Uber drivers taking an Uber trip in has got a valid MOT, a valid insurance. Of course, super, super important. We'd never suggest otherwise. But wow, it'd be really cool if rather than actually having to take an image of a paper document from the driver, we could simply call the APIs from the kind of national databases. And that would be evidence enough. Now, those are the sorts of things we're in active discussions with regulators say, look, let's figure out a way to make this more seamless for everyone. But I think the regulation that we have drivers with all the documents is absolutely required. How confident are you that the licence will be renewed, extended again when this one expires? What I'm confident in is that we're doing, we're extremely compliant and we take compliance with regulations really seriously. I mean, there are, there are large teams that are focused on that. The level of detail is extraordinary. I, and I think it's ultimately for the good of riders and drivers. I just want to make it as efficient as possible. But 
culturally speaking, value speaking, ethics, we are really focused on making it safe and fair and good for riders and drivers alike. Andrew Brem joined Uber as the general manager of its UK business in 2022. The company now has 90,000 drivers in the UK and says that 5 million people use it to take regular trips. Uber has also tried to shed its controversial reputation, which also included allegations of sexual harassment and a toxic workplace culture. Allegations which led to the departure of co-founder and chief executive Travis Kalanick in 2017. I was super excited to, to join a business. First of all, I, I'm, I'm a huge customer. I'm now a driver as well. So I've done both sides of the marketplace, but I, I've long been a big customer of Uber. And so, and, and actually, funnily enough, one of the reasons I have always been a big customer of Uber is that I always felt it I, I felt it was a safe thing. I'm not just saying that, but it sounds like that, but I'm not because, but for the most obvious reason that like on the app, I can, you know, if, if, if one of my elder children is going somewhere in an Uber or my wife is whatever, you know, I can see where they are. You can see who the driver is. There's a picture of them. You've got all of their details there. You know how many trips they've done. You know, that is enormously, you know, for, for me, that made me feel safe for myself and my, for my family to travel in Uber. So I've always found it interesting. I love working for companies that move fast and where I also believe there really is a chance that they kind of change the world. I know that maybe sounds a little bit grandiose, but you know, I'd like to feel part of something that really is changing the way people move. And so that was an attraction to me. I hadn't actually worked for a tech firm. I'd always been doing that sort of thing on the tech side in non-tech firms. I was at British Airways. Before that, I was at Aviva. I started a company within British Gas but I never worked for a Californian tech firm. So that was really interesting to me. And I was in, I was in San Francisco uh, last week, uh, drinking the Kool-Aid, as they say, um, although it was more a kind of smoothie, actually. But it was, um, you know, that was an attraction to me. I obviously, well, obviously to me, at least to my family, I would not work for a company that I thought was ethically at all questionable. I, you know, we've all kind of, you know, read the book and seen the film, whatever. I, I don't have personal experience of Uber five years ago. But I, you know, I, my sense is it is a culturally entirely changed company. And actually, the people that I work with are, you know, smart, enthusiastic, love making things happen, but are also motivated by that same sense of, you know, we, we can change the world moves. And by the way, we can help transportation become more sustainable. I mean, honestly, that's kind of what interests people to join the business. How would you describe the company's relationship with drivers now? You obviously changed terms and, made, and introduced employment terms in 2021. We're here at BAFTA today and there were, there were protests outside by, yep. by some of us. So there are still sort of issues outstanding. Taking the people outside, so what would you say to them in terms of why they shouldn't be protesting and how far has the company come? Yeah, I, I, I don't specifically know what they're protesting about. Um, what I'd say is, well, first of all, you know, we've added, I think, 20,000 drivers since the end of the pandemic to be now well in excess of 90,000 regular drivers, like weekly regular drivers. You know, to a degree, drivers are voting with their feet or with their steering wheels or whatever it is. I mean, people are joining the platform, which I think, you know, that is, that's got to be to a degree a sign of confidence that this is a sensible way to earn a living. When you talk to drivers, and by the way, my team and I have just been, the last five weeks, we've been meeting with drivers face-to-face in kind of 
20 largest cities in the UK. Uh, and they, the drivers have a lot of feedback, which is, which is good. I think a couple of things. The thing that they really love most of all is the total flexibility. And I know that sounds a bit of like a cliche, but a huge proportion of people who drive on the Uber platform do have either just want the flexibility or have constraints in their life, which means they need the flexibility. And often it's, um, it's often family related or it might be because they've got another job. So, you know, you, 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 in London a couple of weekends ago, I was in a car driven by someone who was a lab technician during the week and at the weekend he drives. Others say, look, I work nine to five and then I try and drive three hours after dinner. It is a way that people are earning money. The other thing is it is meaningful money that they can earn. So from time to time, we do release kind of average figures of earnings. And the most recent figures we released were average earnings of about £30 per hour when they are on a trip. In other words, going to collect a customer, a passenger, and then taking them on that trip. So, you know, the earnings are reasonable enough for people to want to join. Do people want to earn more? Of course they do. I haven't yet ever seen a survey in any company that doesn't say that people would like to earn more money. Um, and they also have really good feedback on things they'd like the app to be improved on. And we take that and, you know. Well, in London, you also face this relatively unique issue of the black taxi drivers, yep. which have a unique status and a unique role and relationship within, within the city. What has Uber learned from that experience about how to get communities to adopt new technology that disrupts the status quo? Yeah, I mean, I think the black taxis are a sort of special product, shall we say. You know, drivers obviously do the knowledge. They drive a physically different car, which is quite big. Uh, They have access to bus lanes. It's a different product. I mean, frankly, we'd be open to working with them, as we do in many other places around the world. And I, you know, I think that's fine. I think there are passengers, riders who particularly want that. Then we have passengers who use Uber and black taxis. Um, I think one thing, my sense, because I do ride in black taxis occasionally, despite it being a premium product and with the knowledge, a lot of drivers do use apps. That's the reality. They use apps. So I think fine. I think if you're a driver, it's your choice as to what you want to do. If you'd like to um, just do street hell, fine. If you want to stay on a rank, fine. I would say, why not also do an app? I think that's a sensible choice for a black taxi driver as it is for any other driver. Do you think they will be on Uber? In the I hope they will be. I'm, you know, I, no specific announcements or plans on that. But why wouldn't you be? I mean, there are many other taxi-related apps. Like, why wouldn't you also take demand for Uber? I think if you're driving a taxi, presumably you would like to be relatively busy and earn money. And why should that just be from people waving at you uh, on a street why why wouldn't you look at an app especially if you're using an app for navigation in any way what shape is this business in now post pandemic you touched on this a little bit there but a common complaint about uber post covid has been longer waiting times for, for rides and fewer drivers is that still an issue i would say it is virtually not an issue yet so um you're a year ago like many industries we really suffered from the fact that many people had chosen to go off and do other things or had no choice but had to go and do something else. Um, The airline industry was similarly deeply affected by the pandemic. What we found is that drivers have been returning to the platform and new people have been choosing to join the platform. So today, at well over 90,000 drivers in the UK, that is more than we've ever had before. And we have more than we had before in London. We have more than we had before outside of London. 
And if I look at the stats, which I do all of the time for estimated time of arrival, the reliability metrics, they are virtually back to where they were before the pandemic. And I'd say really sorry to people who experienced uh, you know, the challenges of uh, getting an Uber or indeed getting a train or flying a plane uh, nine months ago. Please, please try it again, because it is kind of back to the old Uber that you knew. The numbers in terms of your drivers are really interesting because, correct me if I'm wrong here, but half are in London and half are outside London. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think a lot of people will be quite surprised that you're already as big as that outside London. What are the plans for Uber outside London? Is this a business that ultimately could be in every corner of the country? Yeah, um, uh, like why, why not? I mean, you know, um, uh, as rightly people recognise that there's a lot of the UK that isn't London, and we're in about 60 towns and cities at the moment. Some of those are huge cities, such as, you know, Birmingham, Manchester, and Leeds, and so on, but also in relatively smaller places as well. And we also have a particular means. So there are some cities where Uber is not there as Uber, but where we have got a partnership or a deal with a local taxi uh, private hire operator so that their vehicles are also available through the Uber app. So the other day I took uh, an Uber train to Ipswich, for example. So I booked my train ticket on Uber. I got to Ipswich station and what I could see at Ipswich was on my Uber app was a thing called local cab. And what that was, was a local private hire operator who has made their vehicles available on the Uber app. And so I I, I booked that. And, you know, so that is a quasi Uber, shall we say. So that's a way in which we're working with a a, a business that we we own called AutoCab, which provides software to a lot of private hire operators to allow private hire operators to also participate, should we say, in the Uber ecosystem. But it's a particularly good way to get to the less big towns and cities where Uber hasn't launched on its own account. Autocab, correct me if I'm wrong, is a Manchester-based business. It is, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's it's an example, I guess, of how the company is also investing in technology and people outside London. Absolutely, yeah. They've got, they've got great technology um, and a really good team. And they're in Manchester, partly historical reasons, but also because that is a great tech city. I mean, you can get real fantastic skills there. And they basically operate and have done for many, many years a, um, a software platform to dispatch cabs, provide um, you know telephony for, for private hire operators, not only, by the way, in the UK, but all over the world. Um, but after we bought them, they continue to do all of that. Um, but if an operator has that software, they can opt into a commercial deal with Uber, which is kind of a separate thing to get that demand. But yeah, it's to be everywhere. You touched on this there with the trains, but just talk about the app in terms of how it's becoming much more than taxis. Obviously, we've got Uber Eats and takeaways, yeah. train tickets, plane tickets. Where Where is Uber going? What What is it trying to become? I mean, internally, we say Uber is there to go anywhere, get anything. Uber Eats is the get anything bit. Go anywhere is the mobility business that Uber rides. And we mean what we say, which is, why would it not be unbelievably convenient for you to pull out the same app, the same payment systems with all the same knowledge about if you've saved your home address or your work address to literally go anywhere? And also to help you connect the dots. Could you invest in other modes of transport? You obviously have taxes, you've invested in, in bikes. Could you invest in a, a train operating company, for example? Yeah, I mean, I guess um, conceptually that's possible. I think we tend to 
in, you know, have financial investments and partnerships where there's a very specific reason to do that, um, where there's kind of mutual benefit in doing that. And it's not something that we've particularly got on the cards at the moment. At the moment, there's no need to. We, it, for, for flights and, uh, for, for flights, we work with a, a, a very innovative business called uh, Hopper. For, for trains and coaches, a very innovative business called Omeo. And that partnership works really well with us. There's no need for an investment. We just have a partnership. They're providing some of the connectivity and the technology. That's the way to make it work now. But who knows in, in, in the future, we have all sorts of partnerships. Before he joined Uber, Andrew Brem was Chief Commercial Officer at British Airways and worked there during the COVID-19 crisis when all its planes had to be grounded. He's also had senior roles at Asda, Aviva and British Gas, where he launched Hive, the company's smart home device that allows you to control your heating and other appliances from your phone. It was an incredibly personally challenging experience for me and the 40,000 employees of BA. I mean, I think um, no one wants to go anywhere near that again. It was really, really, really tough. Um, yeah, it was tough. I mean, the airline industry, generally speaking, if you're passionate about travel like I am, it is uh, interesting and fun. I think it's a British Airways is a great airline. I was very proud to have done that. The pandemic was really tough for everyone who was in an industry that was negatively affected by it. Could you just explain why it was so tough? I mean, obviously, planes were grounded and the business completely well, I mean, transformed. I think that's sort of day to day. That's pretty much the answer. I mean, um, uh, we literally were not allowed to fly uh, many places, uh, or at least passengers were not allowed to get off. And so, I mean, the toughest thing of all was, on the one hand, you know, thousands of people were made redundant. That's terrible. And also, hundreds of thousands of people were prevented from seeing family who live around the world during, I'm sure, the most difficult and challenging time in their personal experience. So it was, at a human level, unbelievably tough. But, you know, as, a, as an executive team, we did our best to keep the business alive and the team was successful in that. And I think they should feel very proud for that. How much did your job change? I mean, because one day you're flying, the next, next day you're not. I mean, what, what were you doing day to day? Yeah, I think um, we learned a very useful skill for the future, which is that we learned to move incredibly fast. We launched new routes in days and hours rather than in months or years. Um, we changed operating processes to allow for all of the legalities of where you could and couldn't go again in hours. Uh, generally, the announcements from government came on a Friday evening, uh, which allowed a generally less fun weekend for people. But look, it, you know, that was to move to learn how to make a very established business move incredibly fast, I think was a good learning for everyone. After leaving McKinsey, you started your career at McKinsey. After leaving mm. McKinsey, you've been to a series of big companies, almost always in roles where you're involved in innovation and the tech side mm. of those businesses. So even at Asda and Carphone Warehouse and, and Aviva, mm. before now ending up here at, at, mm. obviously at Uber and an actual tech business. So what attracted you to those sort of roles? Because... And you've also been involved with the Founders Factory, I think, mm. I think as well. So what is it about yeah. the, that, that sort of tech innovation, digital challenges that, that you enjoy? Well, I, I like to think that I'm part of something that is changing the way we live our lives. I mean, I know that may sound really kind of like pretentious, but, you know, I mean, I joined Carphone Warehouse um, just as the first iPhone was coming out. Utterly transformational, 
it was incredible. Suddenly your life is on your phone. You can play games and like, you know, see people down a video screen and 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 sort of literally do everything on your phone. We now take that for granted. That wasn't even so long ago. Um, that was super exciting. I, I joined ASDA, learned a huge amount of ASDA as well. Um, um, you know, and with an interesting American connection there at the time, being owned by Walmart. That was I my main role at ASDA was rolling out e-commerce, grocery home shopping, where the UK has been a trailblazer. That was transformational. Um, at British Gas, I launched Hive, which is control your home from your phone. We started with central heating. I also had a lot of fun there. Um, that was my that was the my first really close engagement with tech itself. So I was very in, involved with product design there, both on the digital and the physical side. And also, um, and this leads into insurance, um, you know, look, central heating is not the most interesting subject. And in fact, it does have relevance to sustainability energy. Like people struggle with it because it's you can't really see it, yet it's so important. Like when it's not there, you've got a problem. And I think at a kind of consumer marketing level, what I really found fascinating at Hive was how can we get people to engage with, to be interested in controlling your home from your phone? And lo and behold, we found ways um, and we had some fun with it. And we found there's a really human thing. We found that it's true, men like it colder than women at home. People found it amusing to be able to control their home from the you know upper deck in an A380. And we thought, wow, if we can make you know central heating interesting, I can make pensions interesting. Um, and so that you know the, the consumer challenge of finding ways to engage consumers in a quote unquote boring but like insurance important thing, that's been another thing that's really motivated me over my career. You've been listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. If you want to read bonus content from this episode and get business news and analysis throughout the week, then you can sign up to our newsletter, Off to Lunch. You will get newsletters directly into your inbox and be alerted when new episodes of Business Studies go live. All you need to do is sign up at offtolunch.substack.com.